Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Paul Greengrass's new drama, 22 July. The film dramatizes the true story of Norway's worst terrorist attack, following the survivors and grieving families as they rally the country for justice and healing. In addition to 22 July, Mr. Greengrass's directorial credits include the feature films Jason Bourne, Captain Phillips, Green Zone, The Bourne Ultimatum, United 93, and The Bourne Supremacy. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles, Mr. Greengrass spoke with director Brian Helgeland about filming 22 July. During their conversation, Mr. Greengrass discusses how the political landscape influenced his decision to make the film, why he wanted the film to be seen by young people, and how his roots in documentary film affect his approach to narrative filmmaking. All right, Paul. Uh, this, in the past 10 days, the Atlantic called you the auteur of globalization and its discontents. Right. And the Wall Street Journal dubbed you, the Wall Street Journal dubbed you the poet laureate of political violence. Okay. (laughs) I know, I know you as the Ayatollah of rock and roll. (laughs) But, uh, I, I was wondering... That's that's where you are right now. So how did you get how did you get there? How did you? I was. I'm going to just say one word to you and let you start. Spy catcher. Now that was a long time ago. That was 30 years ago. Um, where did I start? Is that the question? Yeah. Where did I start? Well, I was at school. Uh, I was pretty terrible at school, if I'm absolutely honest. I never really quite fitted in, but I did love the art room. And. Um, we had a wonderful art teacher, um, and I just loved it. I used to practically live there, actually, um, and I loved everything about it, using your eyes, having your eyes trained, painting, printmaking, photography, I loved. And then one day at the back in some old cupboard, I found that they, they had an old Bolex camera um, that had been sort of... A, left. I mean, it was an old spring-loaded thing, you know. And uh, I pestered him for film, and he got some film in the end, and I made a little film in the back there. And and uh, I still remember it l- like yesterday, really. It was the sort of all my anxieties, all my fears about fitting in, all my phobias you know what i mean they all just went away in the in the uh in the sort of playing with it and then of course all the great intense it was like a little teenage bonuel is what it was (laughs) (laughs) full of full of intense sexual obsessions and uh teenage angst and uh so so i did this thing you know and i remember writing the script and who didn't have any light, so I had to use angle poises and little dolls and Indian ink and 
Then, of course, the unbelievable excitement, you know, as you wait for, for the film to come back. And then, of course, it's absolutely shit. I mean, you look at it and you go, oh, my God, this is just terrible. Um, and it's been like that ever since. <laughs> they showed it open day, as I recall. All the parents would go, oh, my God, <laughs> who's he? Um, anyway, um, but it gave me the bug and it gave me, and I think this issue of why people become directors is such an interesting one. I, as I get older, I, I, I think it's, I mean, the interesting thing about our job, because we so rarely see each other doing the job, or in fact never, um, so it's quite solitary. I think that the answer lies in, in childhood experiences of cinema, I'm sure, and and my theory is it's to do with childhood loneliness as well. I think if you're quite a lonely kid as I was and you go to the movies, I was taken very early by my grandmother, actually. I used to, she used to take me to Saturday matinees and Snow White and all those things, you know, and you're... you're uh, David Lean said, I think, that to sit in a movie theatre with the light, you know, the projector light shining on a screen made you feel like a pious boy in a cathedral. You know what I mean? And that famous quote, but it, it's absolutely true. And the, the intensity of the experiences of watching cinema as a kid, I think, sort of mainline into your cortex somewhere and they, they burn themselves in. And so later, when you grow up and you start to make films, it becomes a sort of attempt to recreate the intensity of the experiences that you had as a kid, but you're fated never to be able to do it. You know what I mean? So you're, so the making of, of a film becomes a sort of Sisyphean... Endeavor. I don't know whether that chimes with you out there. So you're you're rolling this heavy ball up a hill, and of course it's always bound to roll down and crush you and crush all your hopes and dreams. But then, of course, you you pick another one up because you're trying to get back to the peace that you felt when you're as a pious boy in a cathedral. That's that's. I think that's true. Do you? Is there any particular film that? had a big impact on you? Um, oh, so many. Um, uh, I actually very much, I can remember weeping at Whistle Down the Wind. Do you, did you remember that movie with Hayley Mills? That was a beautiful film about childhood and coming of age, you know. But then later when I left college, I started to work at Granada, which is a television company in Britain that doesn't exist anymore, but it was... Not the BBC. It was very much, it was in the north. It was in the sort of, you know, the, the working class area of the north. And it had a program there, but, which is, again, no longer exists, called World in Action. Which was really where I got taught what little I know by... It was a sort of amazing... Uh, it was a prime time show... It was on film. It didn't have any reporters. There was nobody sitting there with a microphone saying, here I am in blah, blah, blah. It was just you were 
you were sent out into the world, literally, and you were expected to bring back a, a film. And on a subject that could hold a mainstream audience, and it didn't really matter what it was, it could be anything. It had an incredibly eclectic kind of palette everywhere between sort of hard-nosed kind of journalism all the way through to uh, verite documentary and everything in between. Um, and that was really my education, really, both in the world and and in film, and and that experience of, you know, you were taught to observe the world. That was what you were taught to do, not to interfere with it, not to load it, but to, to write, yet to write, yet to, to shoot, yet to cut, yet to do it very, very fast. And, and you were engaging with the title of the programme, was The World in Action. Which so is, is it fair to say that it's a bit of a forensic approach to filmmaking? Not so sure, forensic. I think, I think direct, I think it was. You know what I mean? You were, you were expected to depict the world in action. The title actually was a title that belonged to a man called John Grierson, who's sort of very important. He's really the, the, the granddaddy of the British social realist movement. And as I've got older, I've realized more that although I no longer make world in actions, because it no longer exists, but that's really what I try to do. That's what really in the end, whatever I've tried to do is to capture what's happening out there and in different ways. I mean, I've, I never realized I'd come and make commercial movies. That was, that was a, a complete surprise to me, but I loved it. I mean, I love a car chase, you know. But when I was, there is a so there is a journalistic element that you bring as well. Yeah, facts, I guess. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't believe in not telling the truth. Right. I mean, the truth is many faceted, but you can't. You know, cinema has a kind of primal power, doesn't it? I mean, there's there's a reason why. Stalin and Hitler were so interested in it. You know what I mean? And, and and I actually think one of the extraordinary strengths of Hollywood, you know, historical strengths of Hollywood, is that it it provided the great counterweight in the evolution of cinema to what Stalin and Hitler were trying to do. You know, and it did tell stories about about the world that offered hope and dreams but also held a mirror so that so jumping that all forward to uh, i think everyone must be fairly familiar with the films you've done and you find yourself here 22 july can you talk a little bit about the evolution of it as how how it got from well that I, event to to you thinking you might make a film about it I um, I it was about two years ago. I was thinking I would do a film actually about the migration crisis. That was really where it started, and these journeys that people take from you know Africa through Libya and then on the boats and into Lampedusa. I was going to make it in Lampedusa in southern Italy, but as I was trying to do it, I kept feeling that 
it was only one part of a much bigger story. And that story is this unprecedented movement to the right in, in our politics. And you can see it, I mean, then it was obvious, of course, with... Um, but you can see it now everywhere. You know, Sweden now, as of a month ago, has a neo-Nazi party holding a balance of power. Austria the same. Hungary and Poland have authoritarian governments. There's a hard-right populist party in... Uh, is the Italian government. You know, France, Front National, okay, Macron won, but she got through to the second round. 40% voted for Marine Le Pen. She'll be back for sure. Germany is extremely troubling. You know, you've got the AFD, Alternative für Deutschland, which is a populist anti-immigration party. Very, very strong, second largest party in the Bundestag. And the youth wing is really very disturbing and, and is now openly classed by German security authorities as being anti-democratic. So Britain's got tremendous problems. In fact, the only country really that's escaped is the United States. Oh, no, you got Trump. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. The, um, so, you know, and it's a problem. It is a problem. And, and of course, it, we're not talking about Democrat versus Republican or Conservative versus Labour in the UK or you know, conservatism and liberalism. That fierce argument is what democracy is all about. We're talking about forces that lie beyond democratic norms. And, of course, a tremendous amount of this populist surge sits within democratic norms, although it's stretching them. But a significant amount of it sits outside, and it's meeting groups who want to do us down and they're growing fast and they're curdling in that space outside and getting very, 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 um, you know, unprecedentedly, nothing, we've never seen anything like this and it's not going away either. So that's why I made the film. And it was in your research for the migrant film that, that you came across uh, Revik's uh, that was the key. My, it just it, you could feel that there was the sort of unprecedented population movements, but it's what it's doing to our politics and what the fear of them, because the two aren't the actuality and the fear aren't exactly the same. It's 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 just driving politics everywhere, very very hard. And I remember one day I started to get interested in Brevik, and I decided to sit down and read his testimony in court, which there's a, we use a section there. And that was really the moment when I knew I was going to make the film because reading it with all that stuff about, you know, the you know, the elites and the sham, the fake democracy and, you know, enforced multiculturalism and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, that's... That, when, when, when Brevik used those arguments in the trial in 2011-12, they were considered at the far margins of, of political discourse. But now those arguments are the mainstream. None, none of these populist right-wing politicians have any problem with that argument. That is their argument. And millions of people 
support it. Of course, and it's important to make this point, that doesn't mean to say that you know they would be just as appalled at Brevik's actions as, as, as any of us would be. That's not my point. My point is, it's that, that intellectual framework, that worldview now is driving everything before it is the dangerous thing. So you sit down, can you talk a little bit about how you got to the writing of the script and, and, and set up the film for, to be financed and all those things that you gotta get, get done? Um, well, the first thing I did actually was go and see Jens Stoltenberg. That was the very first thing I did. Uh, because I knew that he was very well, he's, no, he's obviously runs NATO now, but he was obviously prime minister then and still very popular in Norway, although he lost office because of what he did. And he was, I knew by then that he was very, um, had very strong relationships with the families. I didn't want to approach the families cold to ask their permission. I just thought if, if I asked him, he'd give a sort of cautious reading, and if he said, please don't do it, then, you know. And I went to see him in, in Brussels, and literally, the first thing when we sat at his conference table, he said, you really need to make this film because people, I'm telling you, people need to know. The word he used was metastasizing. This thing is, is coming at us fast, and it's people need to know what's coming. And... Um, so then I saw the families and asked their permission and they were strongly supportive. And then it was really about, then Usna Seerstadt who wrote the book. Um, that's a very, very fine book. And I actually, in her book, she tells the story of, of Brevik from birth to, to today or whatever it was, four years ago. And she tells the story of the two young men who died, Anders and Simon, who die in the film. So it's really Brevik and those two. Vilja is only a small part of the book because he's their friend, but I turned that inside out because I wanted it to be Brevik and a survivor um, because I thought what happened in the court was tremendously powerful. And I, I wanted to make a film that was about, not about the attacks, about how they faced up to them and how they fought for democracy because that seemed to me to be the story that is relevant to us today. And could you talk a little bit about how you ended up with Netflix and, and the decisions well, involved in that? Well, that was interesting. I finished the script. Well, we were going to do a movie and then, then that didn't, didn't work out. And then I'd pretty much finished I think I did like two weeks work or something and then we took it out and it was really it was a question of doing it at a studio but you know it would have been obviously a very I mean it was always a small film or we could have done sort of private finance and then distribution after that or Netflix those were the choices I think there were four choices of which Netflix was one and I wanted the film to be seen by young people. That was what was most important to me, obviously, given its subject matter. And um, uh, my, I have 
adult, you know, young adult kids, as you know, they, that for some reason, they were very interested in this film and they were sort of uh, vociferous around that, you know, me and my mates will never go and see it if it's in an art house theatre, basically, right. is, the, is the truth of it. And, and that's unpalatable to us on one level, but it's the truth, you know. And, and so Scott Stuber, who I knew from Universal, had just joined at that point, I think, to set up the sort of Netflix theatrical thing. And his, I mean, we just had a cover. He was very open, actually. He said, we, we're, we're going to do it. I can't tell you exactly how it will work, but I want people like you. I think Alfonso then was either thinking of or had decided to make Roma there. Marty was obviously there already. You know, it was, they, and, and, you know, essentially his argument was that the, the sort of, you make a film, you release it, there's a window, then there's a DVD, then there's a window, then pay TV, and then, you know, stream and so on. That model is being replaced with a flat model where people choose where to watch it this way. Um, and uh, he said, you know, that's what we believe in, and I can't tell you exactly how it'll work, but, but will he come and help us make it work? And uh, it worked for this film because yeah, this I think film, it's fair to say many, many more people will see it this way oh, than than one of the other ways you described. Already, I mean, just in two days, I can see from young, you know, their friends who've, you know, and they see it. They 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 do, and that's just the reality. And you know, plus it's in a couple of hundred theaters, which is about what you would expect for a film of this size and subject matter you know it's never going to be a wide opening film it's it's going to be the big cities here and the big cities in europe you know so I, we got they gave us the best of both worlds and i have to say they've, they've been great I, I can only say the honest truth you know so one thing I find very interesting is, and we all, anyone who's directed has their crew, and you love your crew, and you try to stick together and line up your schedules together. And on this film, you're working with, except for your, I think your first. Yeah. Um, Nobody on you. Not a single person you've ever worked with before. And the same in the cast, too. Right. I mean, ordinarily, when you cast something, if you don't know the actors, you'll know friends who know them or people have worked with them. I mean, it was literally... I knew nobody at all. And actually, that was really, actually really, really great from my point of view. I mean, forget the subject of the film for a moment. There was a little bit when I finished Bloody Sunday and then made my first film here, which was where we met on Born Supremacy. I decided then that I wanted to come with nobody. I wanted to come alone you know, because I wanted to see if I could do it on my own, if you know what I mean, you know, and it, it's, you know, obviously it's great to have your own people and, you know, I've, I've worked with wonderful people who've helped me enormously in making films, but once in a fairly long while, it's a great thing just to go, I'm on my own again, because it makes you, it makes the experience different.
and I did feel that I didn't want to make a film that was pushing quite as hard as some of the ones that I'd done recently. You know, and, and I think that's it's a a more restrained film, which I like about it. I think you mentioned out there that they don't have first ADs in Norway. No, it's a very it's a wonderful place to work, Norway. I mean, it's obviously a beautiful country, and I found it just on a personal level. Getting out of Brexit, Britain was just the most unbelievable. You know, it's a, um, genuinely, it was a relief to get away from all that absolute insanity. Um, to work with new people, um, Pal, the young DOP, was just fantastic. Um, and they're, they're, because they've started a rebate in Norway, they, there are a lot of productions there. I think Mission went there last time. Um, I think Matt's last movie, the one where they shrunk the people, I can't remember the title of it now. Um, Downsizing. Downsizing, they shot there. I think there's a lot of sort of bigger movies going in there and production going in there but their industry has thus far been very very small and really catered for small Norwegian films and television and the way they organize them they don't have ADs it's it's because they they sort of move collectively in their own way but obviously once you get bigger work you need them and um, and they'll develop them of course they will but I mean as a as a place to shoot, fantastic. Brilliant actors, absolutely brilliant. Brilliant crews. Um, can't speak highly enough about it. Can you talk a little bit about the the, act, the young actor who plays Villiers and also the, the actor who plays Brevik and, and what your experience was with them and uh, guiding well, them through, the, through yeah. these performances? Well, Jonas, who played Villiers, the young man, that was his first film. He'd never been on a film set before. And neither had Lara, uh, uh, Seda, who played Lara, his friend. She's actually at drama school. She'd never been on a film before. Um, and I thought they were amazingly assured, you know. Um, oh, that's right. Listen, I'll, I'll tell them that, and it means the world to them. And, of course, it's lovely to be with... But they worked and worked and worked and, you know, and were incredibly accurate and incredibly, um, they got how I like my things to be played, you know. And, and they had, of course, the wings of seriousness that come from it being their, you know, their country, their community. I mean, that... To be fair, that was an intense sort of feeling making the film. That you know, it wasn't me telling them; it was them. I was really helping them tell their story in a way. You know, because I imagine they're under a, a big obligation oh themselves. My God. Yeah, hugely, hugely so, because it's a huge country, no? Well, as you know, but tiny population, and it's it's like two degrees of separation. I mean, virtually everybody on that film knew somebody who knew somebody who was connected, you know. And um, then Anders Danielson-Lee, who played Brevik, he's quite almost the opposite. He's one of Norway's most popular actors, actually. 
Um, he was a child actor and a very accomplished, a brilliant actor, actually, absolutely brilliant. And he, I really admired, because that's a heck of a part to take on if you're Norwegian, you know. And he's, um, he's a very interesting actor. He's a doctor. He, he has a surgery every week. If he's not shooting, he does his surgery. I mean, he literally does it. It's the most important thing. And, uh, and um, very committed, sort of uh, calm, highly intelligent, thoughtful person. And I thought what I loved about his performance, you know, we talked a lot about the, what the film really was about was Norway coming to terms with who he was and that being a journey I think that we all of us in our various countries have to come to terms with. In other words, you know, this terrible thing happened. Did his family background account for it? Well, not really. Uh, you know, was he mad? Well, clearly, in the end, demonstrably not. What they were forced to confront was the fact that he was what he said he was, that he was a dedicated neo-Nazi terrorist, that he was part of, although he acted alone, he was part of a undergrowth of similar and a fast-growing undergrowth, um, which are the original alt-right. I mean, the alt-right is not an American thing, although it's associated with the US now. The alt-right began in Europe and Brevik was part of the alt-right and the alt-right project is to connect up the US and Europe. That's, that's, that's why Steve Bannon is out there now, literally as we speak, going around Europe, meeting all these groups to connect them all together. I mean, that's what he's doing. And it's scary as... I won't use the rude word, but it is. It genuinely is. And if you don't, I mean, a young person who was the AFD youth, she was a very senior person, she just published a book. I've forgotten her name, Erica, somebody. She's gone into hiding. And she lays out in tremendous detail how it's a neo-Nazi organisation and they're engaged in mass radicalisation of young people. And it's um, it's a big it's a significant problem now. Yeah, just last question. The um, there's a moment in the film when he wants to see the prime minister, Brevik, and obviously our prime minister is behind the the one way glass, and he says, "Tell him I'm listening." Mm. And if you just that idea, I think is is really in some ways the heart of the film. And if you could just finish up by talking about the idea behind that? Well, I think that that um, this rage that's out there, sense of betrayal and and comes from people feeling not, not heard. I mean, that's, that's part of the problem. And I think that one of the lessons, one of the most interesting things about when I really sort of looked at what happened was that they had to confront that. They had to allow him to speak. Uh, they had to come to terms with the fact that he existed and he was what he was and there were others like that. And and then, of course, they fashioned this extraordinary process where he, the survivors came in and challenged him. 
really, really close. I mean, not, not much, a little bit further away, but only twice as far as we are. Sit there and they, we show obviously Vilja and Lara do it, but that collective challenge by young people with courage who articulated a different point of view and defeated him and was seen to defeat him in the courtroom. And he knew that they had defeated him. Uh, really is the most special thing. And I think that that um, as we look forward to this problem, which I think is going to be with us for a generation, it's going to be the engagement of young people. I think you saw it here with the response to Parkland. You certainly see it in the UK with the youth response to Brexit. You can see it definitely in Germany with the response to AFD. I think there's going to be the emerging generation are going to have to engage in ideological struggle. I mean, it's you know something that, that went away in 1989 in a funny way. You know, it looked like democracy was just a given. And it really isn't, you know. I, 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 um, I remember, it, it's a funny film because it's made me think a lot about my kids and a lot about my parents, you know. And um, about six months ago, I think we were in the middle of cutting this. I had my dad down to stay. Have you met my dad? I can't remember. Well, he's a, you know, I love him and he's a lovely man, but he's a cantankerous old bugger too. And, and he and I, in all of our life, I've, we've never agreed about politics at all. He's obviously pro-Brexit to the nth degree. Um, and he was in, he's 94 now. Um, uh, you know, he was in the Navy in the war as a young man uh, in the Second World War. Um, and... We were having, he came down saying, we were, of course, having this ferocious argument about Brexit, and it went on and on, you know. And then in the end, I thought, I can't, you know, he's elderly, you know, I'll back off. <laughs> but really, honestly, it's exasperating. Anyway, I made a cup of tea, and he was sitting on the sofa, sort of here, and I saw him, and he was like this. And I said, are you all right, Dad? And he said, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. I said, I'm sorry if it got a bit heated. He said, no, no, it's not that. He said, because I'd been saying, you know, Brexit's going to bring out all these terrible things. You can already see it, you know, it's given. And he went, it's just, he said, I never thought that I would live to see this stuff again, but it's happening again. And I thought, okay. All so right, well, there you go. We'll see uh See what you have to face next on on, on screen. Thank Something you very more much. fun. Yeah, <laughs> a romantic comedy. Thank you. Exactly. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of the Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as award season approaches, including Q and As from Joel Edgerton. Matthew Heineman, and Alfonso Cuaron, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.